Hey, Andy Fortuna here, and I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to Connect and Move Radio. If you are a licensed practitioner, such as a massage therapist, athlete trainer, acupuncturist, physical therapist, etc., who believes in treating the person as a whole, enjoys spending one-on-one time providing hands-on care, and loves helping people improve their confidence, their movement, and facilitate the body's natural inner healing, then I have the course for you the Holistic Movement-Based Practitioner course. It's a mentorship-style course with a three-day live workshop and remote mentorship where we dive into practical assessment and manual therapy skills, movement programming for performance, and energy meditation work. You can find more information in the description at the bottom of this podcast. If you're interested in being part of this immersive educational experience, then take the time right now to sign up. The course is only open to six students, and there's an application and interview process to make sure that this course is right for you. We currently have an active waitlist. So if you're interested, you can send an email to andyandmyernew.com. Thanks again for listening and enjoy this episode. Hold up. Welcome to another episode of Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna. Today we'll be going into chiropractic performance-based care, basically the merging of strength and conditioning, injury prevention, and chiropractic medicine. Today's guest is none other than Dr. Jacob Arden. He's a doctor of chiropractic and an owner or the owner of Orlando Sports Rehab in Orlando, Florida, where he focuses on helping athletes and active individuals recover from injuries. He, is, he also travels and teaches continuing education to health and fitness professionals on the topic of injury prevention and rehabilitation through his course, Prehab 101. Dr. Jacob Arden, welcome to the show, bud. Thanks for having me on, man. Of course, of course. I mean, first and foremost, let's hear um, your story, like how you got to where you're at. Um, yeah, let's hear the background. Um, well, the short and sweet version of my background is uh, originally a kid from Texas who went to the University of Texas and got a human bio degree. Then I moved out to Florida and through a series of events, found the chiropractic school that was out near the Daytona Beach area. And I joined school there. um, And over the course of my three and a half year program there, got my doctorate in chiropractic medicine, and then opened up a clinic in 2015, right after graduation with my wife, Monica, and have been in private practice ever since. uh, Where I gained, I guess, a lot of my following was through social media and through the Instagram platform, just where I've been posting a lot of information about rehabbing injuries, self-care, keeping yourself healthy. Um, I've been doing that for the past few years and have amassed a little bit of a following there. And then started about two and a half years ago, teaching on those topics uh, with continuing education for other professionals with my Prehab 101 course. So that's kind of where I've been as of late is doing a lot of traveling, a lot of teaching, and now stepping back full-time into the clinic after a little bit of time off with a new clinic down in Orlando. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, uh, what got you into chiropractic care? Did you have an experience with a chiropractor or you kind of went to a meeting or something and you're like, okay, chiropractic, what kind of turned on the light bulb for chiropractic? Uh, no, I was the guy who had never been adjusted going into chiropractic school. <laughs> like I was that guy. Um, my dad had had some experience going to a chiro before. He had dealt with some uh, few bouts of back pain and always kind of got some help from it. But the thing that really spoke to me with it was I've I've always been athletic. I've always been into sports. And whenever I was kind of taking my tour of the school, you know, I was talking, hearing about the whole scope of practice, which goes beyond just adjusting and everything. But I started to kind of just visualize what I could do with that degree and what I could do in that field. Because like, say, like physical therapy was something that I'd always kind of looked into uh, while during my time in undergrad, as well as going into medical school. And I just kind of, I'd have evaluated all those paths. And it just kind of ended up being the right choice for me at the time to go Cairo because the scope of practice was very, very similar to PT. I was going to be able to use a lot of exercise. I was going to be able to do rehab, which I kind of always knew is the avenue I was primarily going to be taking because I wanted to help athletes. I wanted to kind of have that sporty 
athletic, active kind of population that I was going to be working with. And so whenever I was just kind of on that tour, I was like, yeah, I think that really sounds like this is what I want to do. And I was just in a place in my life where I was ready to take that leap. So I filled out my application that afternoon and was like, no, I'm going to like, I'm going to dive into this. I'm going to go, I'm going to just go for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, so a lot of people have some type of experience for you. You had, you went through school and you kind of probably saw your options and you did the tour and that's what kind of led to choosing chiropractic. Yeah. Um, What exactly is chiropractic medicine? So it's a, it's a broad field. It's a field of medicine or complementary medicine that is going to utilize more conservative care to help you work through injuries. It's most known for the manual manipulation or the adjustment, Mm -hmm. but it really goes a lot deeper than that in that we have the ability within our scope to use any sort of exercise. We can use any sort of manual therapy, any passive modality, We can diagnose injuries. We're trained to evaluate and diagnose. We can order imaging. We can do, you know, just about anything there outside of prescribing and doing invasive procedures. So that really is the field where I would consider us a musculoskeletal specialist is kind of how I would like the profession to be seen and a conservative care specialist for those musculoskeletal injuries. As far as for your practice, who, what's like the demographic? I mean, I know we, we mentioned in the bio active uh, and athletes, but is there like more of a target or basically any active or ath- athletic uh, person that has any injuries or any pain or limitation? That's the person that you kind of you guys kind of work with. I don't necessarily say, oh, I, I only work with these people. It's um, I've, I really nailed it down to where the primary demographic is. We usually work with people between 20 and 40 years old who are active in the gym, wanting to kind of get back into something, want to get back into their life. We, With that, I've treated people in their 80s. I have treated a two-year-old, you know, um, and, it, you know, so I've gone across the board, but most of our population is kind of in that 20 to 40 age range, people who are active and who are probably have a pretty high degree of self-efficacy, and mm-hmm. trying to manage their own stuff, but they just need a little extra help. I mean, I know you mentioned that, I mean, chiropractic is well known for its manual manipulation. Do you get a lot of people that come just for that? Or obviously now through social media, they understand that you that you know and your knowledge behind the performance and the strength side, but um, because your, your scope of practice is chiropractic, right? Um, do they come just for that? And, and are they a little bit skittish when it comes to that? I know, from, I know for a fact I am when it comes to like manipulation, but um yeah as far as like the manipulation do people come in for that and are they skittish not too often anymore um just because we have a reputation now of kind of just being a more exercise-based practice mm-hmm. and so we don't really attract that that sort of population mm-hmm. um i mean like and we we've built our practice and our reputation to be that way like we have framed our image to be that way to be more active care-minded in that, you know, on our website, you're not going to see any passive modalities. You're not going to see pictures of that or anything. You're going to see pictures of people like working out. You're going to see pictures of the gym that we have in the office. So we kind of attract the audience that we want through that. Most of the adjusting and manipulation that we end up doing is really by patient request more often than not. Um, Every now and again, we might use it as like a symptom modification option for somebody who has back pain or something, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not the most common thing for us to do a lot of manipulation in the office anymore. And we're definitely not getting patients coming in who just want that. Uh, with that said, usually people aren't too skittish around it. If they are, then I don't really push back on it because there's a lot of options outside of manipulation that we could use to get mm-hmm. the same or similar results. So, you know, if they're uncomfortable, then, you know, just going into the whole like psychology of therapy and everything, if they're uncomfortable with it, it's probably going to be less effective anyway. So mm-hmm. I should probably just go with something they're more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so we kind of tend to flow with what the patient likes the most. Got it. I mean, one of the, you just mentioned, but one of the things that I, I've probably never seen this in any doctors or chiropractic office is an actual gym with like GHR with like rack in the, you know, in the back, you actually have, you guys basically have your own gym membership if you wanted to. It's basically what you guys have in the back there. I mean, was that the whole premise? I mean, I know you started talking about uh, the fact that you that's what you want your image to be as far as active. But when you guys were looking into getting a space where you did you want that as far as like having that type of space, that type of gym uh, space? Yeah, exactly. We wanted to have a very open concept uh, environment. We wanted to never wanted you to be feeling like you were crammed into a small little box of a room. We wanted it to be a very welcoming kind of open environment. And we, because of the population that we kind of work with the most, we wanted it to just feel kind of like home for you whenever you walked in, like it's not anything kind of out of the ordinary. So we did want that kind of space. We want a big open space there that we could put in, you know, the squat racks, put the weights in, put the barbells in, you know, and have all that stuff so that we were fully equipped to handle those sports injuries and to work with somebody who needed to, you know, pick up a 35 pound, 40 pound bag of dog food, who needed to pick up their grandkid or somebody who needed to deadlift 600 pounds. Like we could handle everything across the board there. How do you guys go about mixing in and merging in that strength conditioning performance based, uh, kind of care and programming into your approach as a, as a chiropractor? Uh, it starts with the assessment. You have to figure out is because a lot of injuries are programming based errors. It's a lot of lo their load management errors. And so at some point when somebody's had an injury, the load on the system has exceeded the tolerance or the capacity of the system. So something sensitive or something, has become physically injured, torn, snap, uh, broken, frayed, whatever. And so depending on what we're dealing with, somebody is probably going to need some form of exercise to work through that. So in the case of somebody who, let's say, just needs to be able to pick up the 40 pound bag of dog food, but their back hurts too much, you know, how do you, how are you going to help them be able to tolerate that? Well, you're going to need to have them lifting things, just lifting progressively heavier things, starting with what they can handle now. So it's, it's not really terribly different than what you would do in a traditional fitness environment. It just has the added layer of make sure that you diagnose things first, rule out the big bad stuff first. And once you've determined that you have some sort of load intolerance, we figure out, let's say that you can deadlift or Romanian deadlift a 20 pound kettlebell. And so we can then start writing you a program, a progressive loading protocol with that 20 pound kettlebell. And so, you know, from the strength conditioning side, it's just really the principles of progression and specificity and making sure that we get you to the right spot over time. In a little bit more complex scenario, we might have somebody who needs to go through a full like return to sport and everything after a more traumatic injury. And so in those cases, whereas somebody who's just kind of sensitive and in pain, they might not actually need to get physically stronger to get back to life. They might just need to improve their tolerance. Mm -hmm. Someone who's going through a more extensive rehab process due to some sort of tissue injury is probably going to need some sort of specific physical adaptation before we can allow them back onto the field or back onto the court because we need to minimize their risk of re-injury down the road. We need to make sure they're better prepared. So in those cases, that's where we have to understand specificity for sport. We need to understand what type of exercise is loading, what area, what is the demand of that sport? What's the demand of that activity? What are the energy systems that we're going to be needing to use there? And how can we put something together sequentially that is going to take them from a kind of injured state, a very high sensitive, high sensitivity, high pain state and take them through to a more low pain state and then into a higher load physical adaptation and preparation based phase of their rehab before we send them back out there. 
I mean, when it comes to providing these these programs, I mean, you mentioned the progressive uh, loading protocol and then the return to sport. Is the progressive uh, protocol similar to that with an athlete? Just with the athlete has that specificity. Well, I definitely didn't say that right. Specificity uh, side to it, where you're trying to get them into these energy systems, into these capacities of them having to uh, sustain those loads and or sustain those uh, forces in sport. Would you say those protocols are similar, depending on uh, what type of person you're working with? The, yeah. So the the uh, everything's going to be individualized to the person that you're working with and mm-hmm. what their injury is and what their sport is and everything else. Um, but you know, there are just going to be some principles that we kind of work off of such as you work from more general to more specific over time, you are going to start with what they can tolerate and you're going to build up over time. There's going to be a minimum amount of intensity that you have to use to actually, actually elicit some sort of strength gain or some sort of endurance gain or hypertrophy gain or, you know, power, whatever there, people are going to, you know, be able to tolerate different volumes of work. So we need, you know, with some of our like soccer guys, they have to be able to tolerate a certain amount of work to be able to get themselves into the preseason and through the season and not get hurt again. So we try and analyze all that stuff and, we try and keep some metrics and we track a lot of stuff um, and some objective data in order to just make sure that we're kind of staying on track in the right spot. Are there any other uh, tools? Obviously you have kettlebells, basically you have everything you have in the gym, but is there anything else that you would uh, use um, maybe to make it easier for the process or is it depending on the person and what their specific goals are? We want, we try and build our rehab programs based around what the patient is going to be able to do on their own. Mm-hmm. So the way that we typically work is we are usually seeing our patients in office once every three to four weeks. Um, if we are having more of an acute injury, we might see them more frequently. Mm-hmm. But for the grand majority of people, it's once every three to four weeks. So we really put the we really put the ball in their court mm-hmm. in order to get the rehab done and do the work. So if some people if somebody's just working out at home, then you're going to need to come up with some body weight minimally loaded exercises or talk through how they could what they could use at home in order to help them. You know, or discuss grabbing a gym membership for this time frame. If somebody has, you know, a full commercial gym, then we can recommend machine-based work and we can kind of walk them through how that would work. If somebody's in a CrossFit gym or a CrossFit box, then, you know, we would have to say, all right, well, cables and all that stuff are kind of out. So it's going to be a lot more barbell, kettlebell, dumbbell-based work. So we really try and build it around what the person that we're working with has with them. Um, That way we promote adherence uh, first and foremost. Is there a specific, uh, I'm assuming a lot of this stuff, you're, you're providing like an online or some type of uh, home programming for them to follow. Uh, what are the, your, I guess, what have you found to work, uh, as you mentioned, adherence to, for the patient to uh, comply and to really progress and, and to, you know, to create that sustainability that you guys are trying to promote? What are, what are the best ways that you've, you have found to be able to um, provide this program for them? So we provide our programs. Um, we do provide them online via either a Google Doc or an Excel spreadsheet. We give them video instruction for them to follow so that they have all that. But beyond that, the things that really promote adherence are going to be like talking to your patient about what their schedule looks like. Like what's feasible? Is it really feasible to be doing rehab daily? Is, or is it more feasible to be doing something twice a week or three times a week? What kind of volume level is really feasible? What is going to fit into their schedule the best? You know, someone who is a parent of three young kids who has to chase them around all day has a vastly different time availability than somebody who's 20 years old, part-time in college. Mm-hmm. You know, so we need to work with that first we need to make sure that we're not giving them something that is completely just out of their capabilities to actually perform. And I think that's something that like often kind of gets ignored. 
uh, whenever someone's just given like a white sheet of exercises and says, oh, do all this. Mm-hmm. I would much rather give, you know, a few very targeted exercises that I know are going to get done. And we have some literature to, to suggest that around like three exercises promotes adherence uh, better than a lot more, you know, maybe up to five. But that's really a, a big part of it. Then, you know, we try and always ask our patients if what they prefer. You know, I have a lot of ways to load an area and like mm-hmm. say somebody just isn't comfortable doing a squat, but they're really comfortable doing a lunge. Well, like I can do a lunge then, <laughs> you know, um, it's probably okay to do that. And then if we need to teach them how to do a squat later, we can. Um, but typically we have a lot of options as to what exercise selection we could go with. So we can go with what they find most enjoyable. And then you need to make the exercise meaningful to the patient. So you need to be able to explain to them and help them understand why exactly they're doing it. And that a lot of that for us comes down to correlating it to what we found in our exam and showing them like, oh, well, you know, whenever we had you hold your arm out and we pressed down on it and that kind of made your shoulder hurt, well, we're going to create a very similar type of load with this lateral raise exercise. But, and so whenever we tested that, you know, how you were able to handle the little five pound weight pretty easily, but the 15 was, it was kind of not very good for you. You weren't able to tolerate that very well. So what we're going to do is we're going to have you work with the five because you were able to handle that. And then as you're able to work with that and get stronger with that, you're going to be able to tolerate that 15 better. And whenever you can tolerate that 15 better, then putting your dishes away isn't going to be as hard either because you're, it's a very similar type of load that you're putting on your shoulder with that. So we try and relate things back to their day-to-day activities, the things that they're telling us are their pain triggers, the things they're telling us they're having trouble with, and what is most meaningful to them so that we drive that buy-in on the whole program. First of all, that word buy-in is such a powerful word, and I'm very glad you said that. I mean, adherence, um, I mean, because we can have the perfect program, but if nobody's following it, then it really doesn't mean anything. And I think you mentioned a super important thing which i think a lot of clinicians may not think about because again yeah we are the experts but having something that is meaningful or creating something that is meaningful and also productive are it's where the magic happens right because it's if it's you know very uh it's if it's results based but the patient doesn't really um believe in it or doesn't really uh, like you mentioned feasible for them to even carry out then it's not you know it can be the best program ever but if they're not going to about it doesn't matter but you, you you spoke about something where where you said what they prefer right and it can be an exercise it can be comfortable like they're an exercise they're comfortable with an exercise uh that they're more comfortable doing alone whatever it may be but i think that uh, preference plays a big role and i think sometimes as clinicians we may be scared to ask for the patient's preference because uh they might say okay they're coming in for my advice or for my suggestions. So for me to ask them, it might undermine what I'm uh, saying or programming. But I think uh, kind of like the example you just mentioned, if you have them, uh, if you if you provide an opportunity for them to suggest, I think it creates more an interaction with their approach, or should I say, with their mental state of where their program is. Uh, because now they're actually cooperating and actually implementing stuff into the program and being part of the program rather than just being told what to do. And I think those two words of adherence and buy-in along with preference uh, play a super big role when it comes to programming. Yeah. And on the preference note, you know, one thing that we might do is we might just, let's say, take the squat lunge thing again. We might take somebody through a squat, a lunge and a step up in the office and we might test all of those movements and we might find the loads they can work with, with all of those movements. And then at the end, I might just tell them, so I'm going to program one of these, which one of those did you like the most? Because any of them can work. Mm-hmm. Right. So it kind of looks like it was my choice to do <laughs> them anyway, but then it's their choice to choose which one that they liked out of the three. So, you know, it's, I know like people can kind of get paralyzed with the paradox of choice. Yeah. Like, oh, I have all like any any exercise, 
no. So like, I'm going to choose some options for you that I feel are going to be useful. And then I kind of let them, you know, I narrow the menu down and then I let them choose from a narrow menu. So it makes that choice a little bit easier. And then it really is like a collaborative care between you and your patient in developing the program. Exactly. Collaborative care. I mean, is there, how does the conversation go once you create a program? Is there a conversation or maybe it's a continuing conversation that you have with your patients and, and the people you work with as far as motivating them? Because again, you're seeing them every about two to three weeks. Is there a, a conversation? I know I have conversations with them as far as motivating them or maybe creating some, how can I say, uh, sense of confidence within the program before they leave or is this i mean how do you go about that is there like i said is there a conversation you go or you that you have with your patients after the program is said and done and they're about to walk out the door or, or whatever it is is there, is there a conversation that you that you have usually well we always make ourselves available to answer any questions we always make ourselves available to if our patients have any issues that kind of mm-hmm. crop up as they're working through things so we make it very clear that they are able to reach out if they need anything. One thing that I do try and do with our programs is I try and make the first two to three weeks pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a confidence boost for them, as well as like if we're working with something like a tempo squad or something, like you can get really sore from that, from just all that time and retention. So we will often work with some kind of lower intensities and lower volumes with that starting out as a way to just kind of build up their base work capacity there so they don't get extremely sore. But it also acts as this nice like confidence boost as well. So as an example of that, if we find that a patient is able to tolerate a 200 pounds for a squat on um, for 12 reps, So they're kind of like 12 RM tolerance level is 200 pounds. The way I might write that program initially is I might start them week one at 175 pounds and have them do that for eight. So if they're able to do 200 for 12, 175 for eight is probably very low likelihood of flaring them up. Mm -hmm. It's also very very low likelihood of it being hard for them. So it acts as a nice little like, wow, I got something done today that actually wasn't too bad. Uh, and then the next week, we might jump that up to 190 for 10. So then they do 190 for 10. It's a little bit harder than the previous week was, but it's supposed to be. It's a ramp up period. And then in week three, we might retest 200 pounds and see if the work they put in over the last couple of weeks, even if it's due to less than even if it's due to just less sensitivity, allows them to push beyond that 12 number, which it often does. So now week three, maybe they get 200 for 15 reps. And we can then have a comparison and we can show them right there be like, hey, look at the progress you're making. And that in and of itself is a huge confidence boost for the patient to see like, wow, there's some objective progress that I made. And that is then going to help us promote that buy-in for mm-hmm. the next, like, say, three weeks where we're really going to kind of get into the meat of the rehab program and we're going to kind of start pushing things a little bit more. Are you a big fan, it sounds like you may have, or may or, or maybe, uh, of a whiteboard in the yeah, office? Yeah, very okay. much. I have, uh, it's been uh, recently, again, I've been, I know Zach uh, Gabor and, and a couple of people that, that talk about this whiteboard epidemic, uh, or not epidemic, just again, influence. Um, and I, within the last year, I have input this whiteboard that has been, it's crazy how how such a simple addition, simple tool can be, one, a big communication link between patient and, and, and practitioner, but an I find that it creates um, almost a sense of confidence in a sense where the patient can now see visually, hopefully your your handwriting skills aren't as bad, mine has gotten a little better, and that you don't get too crazy with arrows and zigzags and stuff, but I think it creates a, a, a sense of, uh, because again, people have different ways of, of learning, right? So if, if you're just speaking to them, that's one way, 
if you show them, that's another way. But if you can draw it out or maybe give them a timeline, something they can, it's tangible in a sense. I think it makes the process a little bit easier. Um, how do you go about using this whiteboard in your office or in the in the clinic? Uh, so I draft up just about everything on it, <laughs> uh, which just for I know I've I know your clinic and I know your style over there. You got to get on those black glass whiteboards. <laughs> they look so nice. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, anyway, the way that I typically will go about it is I write out all the things that we were kind of went over with testing and everything um, with because a lot of our initial assessments and all of our follow-ups are about gaining that objective data. So it's about mm. finding the exercises that are going to work best. It's about finding the loads that work best, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so then what I kind of do is I draw out a mock progression for them and I might break it down into different stages and say like, well, today here's all the thing, kind of things we found. So with that deadlift, we found that you were able to deadlift about 150 pounds today before your back wasn't really happy with it. And when we had you test that, you were able to get it for about four reps. So we lowered the load from there and we got you down to about 135 pounds and you were able to do that for 10 reps. And so that's where we're going to start. So I kind of first start using it as kind of a recap of our day a recap of our session mm-hmm. to walk them back through and kind of just tell them the story of everything they just went through. Right. Because that helps us relate it to, well, why are we, why am I making these decisions moving forward? Mm-hmm. From there, then I can write out a progression from, all right, so here's where you're at with 135 for 10. What we're going to do is, uh, and I'll, I'll throw in some, you know, some jargon with it. Like we are going to use a linear periodization approach with you and we're going to try 145 for uh, eight reps on, on your next progression. So once you can get 135 for 10, we're going to try 145 for eight. And once you can do that, then we might try 150 for six and see how that goes. And we'll and I kind of draw it out for them how that's going to look. And then after that, then we'll probably wave back down, bring it back down to about 140, maybe try that one for 10 and so on and so forth. So I kind of give them a little bit of a mock view mm-hmm. of what is going on in my head as far mm-hmm. as how I see their progression going. And then I try and relate that to whatever they have told me back in our history about how is this impacting them the most? What kind of burden is this injury placing on their life? What How is it affecting their quality of life? So something that I try and look for is what are like the three biggest impacts that this injury or this pain is having on your life right now? And like, so for some people it's like, Oh, I can't, I can't pick up my kid or every time I go to the gym, it hurts. And I feel like I'm losing all my motivation to go or, you know, I can't do X, Y, or Z. So I try and relate it back to that. And so like we might relate it back to a goal that they have for the gym or I might have asked like, oh, hey, what's Brian's name? You know, ask what their kid's name is or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or what's he, what's Brian weigh? And ask him, ask what his weight is. And then say, like, so, you know, like once we can get you here, because remember your kid weighs about 80 pounds right now. So whenever we can get you deadlifting about 100, you're probably going to find that picking him up really isn't a big deal anymore. And that burden of that injury is really going to go lower. So we give them that clear path forward, you know, and we give them a a bit of a view of what the road looks like that they're about to start walking down. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be exactly what I put on the paper whenever I send it to them, but it is at least an idea so that whenever they go home, they're talking to their spouse, they're talking to their friends. They say, Oh, what'd the doctor say? And so they can kind of lay it out for them and they have a better view of, yeah, he said that here's what we did. Here's what he said was going on. Here's what he said is, he thinks we should be doing moving forward and you know he seems to have a lot of confidence that i'm going to get better i can only imagine because i mean i experience it here sometimes when people come here for for therapy and they're like wait this feels like a workout like, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sure when they go back uh to their family or whoever and say yeah the doctor was writing on the board and he said that i have to lift and work out and i have to do this and then in three weeks we're going to be making progressions and i'm gonna be lifting uh about 200 pounds 
right? I mean, that's not the common thing that you get back from a doctor is usually don't do this, don't do that, take this, see you uh, in about three months, right? Um, yeah. So this whole, and what we're starting to see with this performance-based care and this and this concierge type of uh, care is, is, is just that, is this time that we're able to have with these patients and give them the bigger picture, give them the story and really create impact, right? Because now we're able to, like you mentioned, okay, what are these top three things that you're not, that, that you want to work on? Or what are your pain points? Or like you mentioned, the three biggest impacts that you're having. Um, and you, and you, like you said, it could be easily not being able to interact with their kids like they want to, not being, uh, or being less motivated to go to the gym, whether through pain or, or maybe they don't understand how to go, how to go about this limitation. Um, and I think kind of like what you just mentioned, one, the whiteboard, like I, I experienced with, uh, within the last year, how I'm not, not necessarily important because you can do it even with a piece of paper, but it's a lot cooler on a whiteboard and you get to <laughs> pop off that market marker and just like go to town. Um, but I th like I mentioned, or should I say, like you mentioned this story that we're able to play out, right? If you want to draw uh, stick figures, you can draw stick figures, you can draw arrows and stuff, but it gives the person that you're explaining to and a better idea of, of why. And that, I love that recap that you talked about because you can go through a session and sometimes you just threw a lot at them and you're just kind of going, I mean, even if you planned it, but a lot of times we're kind of going off of uh, progressions at the moment. Uh, and I think that recap at the end helps to kind of solidify everything that you're doing. And also too, that, I mean, as far as the patient side, they get to understand, okay, we did this because of this and we're working towards these goals. So you get to tie in all those goals and uh, specific pain points. But I think also, I know for me, for myself as a clinician, um, I also get to gather my thoughts a lot more. First, in the beginning, I get to kind of at least get a draft of what I want to work on, but also at the end and be like, okay, this worked, this didn't work. Uh, but also kind of get what's in my head onto the board. Cause a lot of times what we think is going to happen <laughs> doesn't always pan out. So this whiteboard or again, any tool that you use, even if you just write it on a, on a note, um, I think helps a lot when it comes to uh, increasing that buy-in, increasing the adherence, increasing that confidence uh, from patients, but also too, as a clinician, it helps to gather your thoughts and really streamline what we're trying to do. For so sure. I love that. I love that. For sure. And, you know, and it also is a good way to help you conceptualize maybe abstract topics. Right. So one thing that I try and explain to a lot of patients is like the importance of activity modification mm -hmm. initially in an injury. So like I describe it as a scale and that the load that they're currently putting on the area that hurts is just outweighing their current tolerance mm. to that load. And so their scale is kind of out of balance. So before we add any exercise in, which is just more load on the system, and I can just kind of draw that out and be like, well, what happens if we add more load over here on the load side? Like, well, it just outweighs it more, right? So mm -hmm. before we can systematically add a little controlled load, we might need to modify and take some uncontrolled load off of it. And so that helps me like, help them understand activity modification and why I actually want them to maybe make a couple changes and maybe back off from doing a couple things initially and temporarily. Uh, and then why, how we're going to bring them back in later as we build their tolerance up. Awesome. Let's uh, talk to me about injury prevention. What do you want and, to know? And so what, what do you consider injury prevention? And then how do you go about uh, injury prevention. Well, <laughs> I know it's a big topic. I'm, thro yeah. I'm throwing a giant net, casting a giant net over you. So right. you do, you do what you want with it. I mean, just <laughs> throw back whatever you want. Well, I think the first thing that we should have to, what we should say for the audience is that we can't prevent all injury. Exactly. So that like we you're use starting the off at a great note, by the way, you're, so you're we going, use the term injury prevention. Thanks. So we use the term injury prevention, but we don't really prevent, right? Because at the end of the day, stuff can happen. You can step off a curb wrong. You can roll your ankle. So, you know, you can call it injury mitigation if you want. You can call it injury risk reduction if you want. You can call it injury prevention if you want, as long as you just kind of know what the reality of the situation is. So the th we need to first understand that human beings are an adaptable system, right? You're an adaptable organism. 
So you're going to adapt to meet the demands of your life. And we have plenty of accounts of humans doing amazing things to where we know that the human body is capable of way more than we give it credit for. Mm-hmm. It's robust. So injury mitigation is really about preparation. Are you prepared to do the things that you want to do? Right? It's like, I am not ready to go run a marathon today. Like I haven't, I haven't trained for that. And more than likely, if I tried to go run a marathon today, I'm going to at best be extremely fatigued at the end of it. I'm going to be extremely sore. I'm going to feel extremely beat up and I'm not going to want to do a whole lot for the next week. And that's at best. At worst, I'm going to end up with some sort of tendinopathy, some sort of, you know, acute issue that, you know, some sort of injury because I just wasn't ready for that. Maybe I'm going to end up with a stress fracture, you know, from the impact. Mm-hmm. And it's because I'm not ready to do that. I have not exposed myself to that kind of load systematically in a way that has given my body time to adapt to that type of stressor and to the level of stressor that I'm going to be uh exposing myself to in sport, in life, in whatever. So if you take a look at how injury actually occurs, we can actually break injuries down into different categories. So if you think about if you can think about your acute overload injuries, you can break those down to three groups: contact, non-contact, and indirect contact. Contact is pretty, you know, self-explanatory. You get hit, someone hits you, and really the only mitigation that you have there is were you strong enough to take it? You know? mm-hmm. So if you're not strong enough to take it, you get hurt, right? Because you don't really have control over the load applied. You don't really have control over how your body moved. You don't really have control over how your body absorbed that load. All you have control over is could you take it in whatever way it came. In a non-contact injury, you have a little bit more control over kind of how your how your body moves, and that's why we can teach someone like landing mechanics and stuff like that uh, as a way to help prevent some of these non-contact injuries, like a jumping and landing injury um, or like cutting weird and like tearing your ACL. Again, though, are you strong enough to take that load? Uh, because how fast you're going, how high you're jumping, et cetera, is going to kind of determine the load. And then you have an indirect contact, which is like you have to kind of dodge somebody midair. You get kind of a weird bump or something come down wrong. And so that ends up kind of being a kind of a mixture between those two. And then the other end, you have your kind of cumulative overload injuries, which are the ones that we see more often in our gen pop. And these are kind of more of our non-sport injuries. And those tend to be broken down into two categories, too much too soon and too hard for too long. So... You jumped into something way too quickly that you weren't ready for. Uh, The example I give whenever I'm teaching is someone who decides they want to get in shape. They haven't worked out for the last five, six years, maybe even longer. And they go and join Orange Theory, really like how it makes them feel and start going five days a week with no base fitness level. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's no hard, medium, light structure to it. It's get in there, sweat, go hard every day. And then they end up getting some sort of overuse, in quotations, injury, which is really just a too much too soon kind of injury, Mm -hmm. right? Or it could be I went out and I tried to run a marathon today and that was way too much too soon. We see that with people that go into the gym. They start off with way too much volume or they change up their training program and it's just way too much volume. They don't really introduce that new training program in. So maybe they went from working their shoulders twice a week to working them three to four times a week. Well, there should be a period there of ramping that volume level up so that it doesn't shock the system so much that you get some sort of response where it kind of pushes back against you. The other way, the too hard for too long, I feel like that's how more of our experienced trainees Mm -hmm. get injured. And that's like every day ends up being the hardest workout ever. Every day is like a nine out of 10 workout and you're just not recovering. 
you're not keeping up with that recovery. Maybe you're not deloading when you need to be deloading and you're just feeling beat up and you just keep on pushing until finally something happens. Typically you're really fatigued and you know, something happens and you feel pain and you get hurt. Uh, and then usually that ends up getting like blamed on like, Oh, well, my form deviated. So it must've been my form that was wrong. I was like, no, it was probably like the accumulation of stress over the past two months that you didn't listen to, <laughs> you know? So a lot of our injury mitigation on a general population level comes down to education on proper programming and managing the loads and helping them, helping people manage stress recovery balance and understanding where their current capacity is. Then over time, building your capacity higher to be able to handle more. So I'll ask you the question that I ask everybody. Are you comfortable moving your couch? Yes. It depends for how long and where to. Like you, like you're, if you had to move your, if you had to move your couch across the living room, you're not, you're not really scared. You're going to hurt your back, right? No, no. Well, also if I have help. Yeah. How'd you get but there? Yes. That, for yes, yes or no question. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more than confident to do that. How did you get there? How did I get to that conclusion? You know, just how did you get to that point of feeling confident that way? How did I get there? Just from my daily stuff that I do now. And right. I'm right. Like, exactly. If I, can, you, if I can do this, then I'm probably pretty sure I can do that. Right. You tra- And you trained. Yeah. Right. Like you've built your body up over time exactly. to be able and to the point that now you feel very confident that you could do that. Absolutely. How many of our clients feel that way? How many of our, how many of our, how many of our clients feel confident they could move their couch by themselves and not hurt themselves? Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I think about like, does my grandmother feel that way? <laughs> do, do my parents feel that way? Does right. my neighbor feel that way? Um, does that patient walking in the door feel that way? And so I use that example because that is often that and like moving out of your apartment or moving out of your house is typically the most demanding thing that life often asks of us, unless you're in some sort of manual labor job. Mm-hmm. So really what injury mitigation comes down to for the majority of us is, are you strong enough to handle your life? Are you prepared for that? And after that, what people need to realize is that all the stuff that you do in the gym, you're doing it for fun. You're doing it because you enjoy it. You know, I don't know that me taking my squat from 300 pounds to 400 pounds is really reducing my injury risk anywhere in my life mm-hmm. because I'm not going to be asked to do that at any point. The, and really the place I'm probably going to get hurt is in the gym because that's where I'm pushing myself. That's where the load is high enough that I could push myself. So it becomes paramount there that I pay attention to my recovery there. I pay attention to my life stressors and where my recovery, when my recovery might be down versus when it's up and managing the loads that I'm applying there. So that is the long way of saying that injury risk reduction really comes down to manage the load on the system to what you can handle to the best of your control, build your capacity to handle more load over time and realize that stuff is probably going to happen at some point. You're probably going to feel some sort of discomfort at some point and you need to have a mindset towards it that you don't freak out when that happens. I think, I think first of all, that was awesome. Let me just say that you, you started off strong and, and finished off very, very strong. And the reason why I ask what injury prevention is, I think uh, a lot of people have it in a sense where, okay, if I do this, I'm never going to get an injury. And you, the way you finish it is like, if you get, you know, if you have some pain, if you have an injury, you know, don't be scared or don't be, you know, don't freak out. Just let's go back to square one, see where you're at, what's your capacity, what's your threshold, and let's build from there. I think a lot of people... Um, one, what they don't realize is the fact that the amount of volume that they're doing plays a big part of that injury that we talked about, right? And then ramping, I mean, what you mentioned, uh, the accumulated side was uh, too much too soon and too hard too long. Too much too soon, we see a lot. You, you gave the great example of the Orange Theory or any HIT class or any boot camp class, especially when somebody comes from a, a background of 
um, not being able to lose weight or they were unmotivated and all of a sudden they, they're very motivated. They start to see all this progress and they say, okay, if I want to see faster progress, I got to double it. So instead of right. coming three times a week, let me start coming six times a week and go as hard as I can for as long as I can. Right. Um, and we start to see this, this again, this volume ramping that is way off the spectrum. And then they say, oh, it must have been the squat or it must have been this class. I mean, it, like you mentioned, very rarely it's actually a lot of times it's the amount of load. And they don't a lot of times having that conversation with the patient saying, hey, I understand you like doing X, Y and Z. And it could be a stress reduction for you and kind of like your escape. And it also helps you lose weight and you're seeing good results. But by the way, you are also a human being and not a machine. So you can't just press go and turn up the volume and try to maintain as much as possible. There has to be uh, a spectrum. There has to be kind of a, a balance like you're mentioning, that ramping. Uh, maybe going hard for you know a couple of weeks and then bringing down into that deload like you also mentioned. Um, or we see the other spectrum, like the athlete that says, man, if I want to make it to the pros or if I want to you know get seen or be at uh, this level, I have to beat the competition. I have to go hard all the time. Right. right? Or they see uh, a, a professional athlete on TV and it says, man, this person must be working 365 hard all the time. They are working every day, but very smart and very intently. So it's not hard all the time. Right. And and I think a lot of times the, the for the first example, the the baseball, we, what I would call the recreational athlete or the person getting into fitness might not see the side of uh, doing too much doesn't mean you're doing, or should I say, uh, just because you're doing a lot just doesn't mean you're doing a lot of good stuff, right? Being able to manage your stresses, manage that recovery, the big component to being consistent. Yeah. And then to the athlete is just because you're going hard now doesn't mean anything. You want to be able to be at your best the entire time. Because that's in reality, like, I, so I play collegiate baseball. And especially in baseball, it doesn't matter what you do in month two or in April or in May, it matters what you do in October. And if you can last to October or be at your best in October, and then that's, that's, those are the teams that win the championships. The people, that, the teams that win that, that uh, uh, World Series are not always the, the perfect uh, record team. Is that, per, is that team that has chemistry, obviously, but as far as health is who's in best health in October and who's playing at their, at their optimal level. So yeah. I think a lot of times, especially with athletes, they're saying, I've got to go hard on all, all the time. I had this conversation with my uh, a little brother He's because he's getting into football and really want to train. I was like, listen, you guys are doing two days right now. You have to really understand that that's great, but you have to understand, too, you have to eat well. You have to make sure that you're sleeping well. It's summertime, so you're going to want to uh, party and all that stuff. But if you really want to compete, there has to be that balance in between. I think you mentioned, one, volume ramping, which is super, super important. Uh, you mentioned also the importance of the stress recovery balance, which is super important. And I think, like you mentioned, it comes down to, to education, especially when it comes to uh, a clinician uh, trying to kind of get through a patient and trying to really help them. Really providing this education, whiteboard approach, uh, really helps to kind of, I guess, tie in everything that we're talking about. So that, I think that was awesome. Injury, yeah. injury prevention, which really means injury mitigation, because in reality, preventing preventing injuries might be nearly almost too impossible, but mitigating or minimizing that time that you're actually injured, I think is what we're looking for. Yeah. One uh, example that I try and give to my patients, and it seems to, that resonates with them pretty well, whenever we talk about, you know, just trying to constantly work hard all the time mm -hmm. is, you know, you've heard the difference between be like being productive and being busy. Yep. Like, you know, you can be busy by scrolling social media every 20 minutes on your phone and really not really getting a lot of work done or you can be really productive mm -hmm. and you can get all your work done in a pretty short period of time that's kind of what a lot of our I, I explain training to people that way too in that i don't want you to be busy i want you to be productive i want you to get in and get some quality work in and i want you to recover because you don't always have to just do more 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 mm -hmm. you know so that really is it for the majority of people. It's realizing that it's getting a good plan in place first that is going to help them ease into things, build progressively over time, and kind of play a long game, not a short game, uh, in building their capacity. And then probably the other thing that I think a lot of people could benefit from is just an auto-regulation approach. Mm -hmm. Really 
taking the approach of if my body's telling me that I'm a little beat up today, I'm a little under recovered today, what do I do? Like, what is the decision making process look like there? And one of the easiest ways that I think people could start implementing that is like, if your program says that you're going to do 75% of your one rep max today, that should really kind of be looked at as do somewhere between 70 and 80%. And so if you have a real, if you're coming in and you're really having a bad day and you're like, you're going through your warmups, you're like, wow, this is really slow. Like this is feeling really heavy. Go on the low end of that spectrum, right? Go to that 70% because you don't want to add more fatigue on an already fatigued system. On the flip side of that, if you're coming in, everything's flying and you get to that 75% and you're like, well, that feels like I'm not even doing anything today. It doesn't even feel hard enough. Well, maybe today's the day you push a bit and you go up to that 80% number because at the end of the day, training is not about moving a certain weight. Training is about getting a certain stimulus, Hmm. right? And so we're really looking for a certain degree of effort being put forth day in, day out. So if you're having a lighter program day, the effort that you have to give should be lighter. If you have a hard day, the effort you give should be hard. You know, if you have a medium day, the effort should be a medium. So if you kind of take that auto-regulation approach of saying, well, am I giving the effort that I need to give? And realizing that the program, the weights that are programmed are largely just a guide to get you there. But a program can't understand a human being and everything that might go into being a human being on a day in, day out basis. So you are going to have to take things into your own hands at times and realize that maybe I need to take a lighter day today to make better progress in three weeks. Love it. Auto-regulation. If you're not writing these things down, make sure you are because he's giving out nuggets like never before. Thank you, Jacob. Um, Yeah, wow. My papers in front of me are just scribbled everywhere. There's notes and arrows everywhere. It's awesome. Um, Let's go into Prehab 101. Um, One, why Prehab 101? And then two, yeah, how can we get more information? Well, it's called Prehab 101 because that's a marketing term. I'll be completely honest. <laughs> and I, t- I tell everybody that. Like, If you don't like the term prehab, realize that what I mean by that is preparation. It's everything I've already talked about. Um, it's nothing gimmicky that is like, oh, just do face bowls and your shoulders will never hurt, which right. I understand that there is a stigma around that word that way. But in, in reality, you know, in injury mitigation via strength training and positive mindset just wasn't selling as well. So right. prehab 101 it was. Um, but so the my big passion is in helping people around injuries. That's that's what I love to do. So the course is a two-day course for health and fitness professionals. Um, we welcome all of you to come in and learn about how you can help clients get back from injuries and help reduce their risk of re-injury moving forward. So for our health professionals, we really go deep into the rehab process. We talk about how do we select loads for rehab? How do we write out a progressive rehabilitation plan for a client and take them through that whole process? What What do the different phases look like? that we might take somebody through um, if they're just dealing with sensitivity versus if we have to take them all the way through needing some sort of specific physical adaptation. For our coaches, we talk a lot about helping clients not get injured and proper programming and setting up that kind of long-term program with those auto-regulatory approaches to help clients day in, day out to not get hurt and help a lot of the stuff that we talked about here. And we'll present a lot of the literature surrounding that kind of stuff for you. So we, it's really that kind of conceptual framework and principles around how do we help a client get healthy and then stay healthy for the long term. Love it. Um, how can they contact you uh, if they have any questions regarding this podcast? Because if they're anything like me, I'm writing down stuff here 
at all at all, the entire time of the podcast. So if they can have any questions, how can they reach out to you? And then uh, how can they sign up for the course? So best way to get in touch with me is either through email, prehab101 at gmail.com, or you can always find me on my Instagram page, which is at dr.jacob.harden. Um, I leave all the links to my courses right there on my um, right there on my Instagram page, uh, which is just Linktree uh, slash Prehab One Hundred One, and or you know I'm sure I can give Andy the link here. We can put it in the show notes or something. Yep, we would definitely uh, don't go uh, crazy trying to write this down. I'll definitely have it on the bottom of this uh, other podcast uh, show note to the description. All right. Any book recommendations, uh, Dr. Jacob Harden? Any book recommendations? What am I reading right now? I just picked one up. Let me pull. I'm gonna pull it out of my backpack. So right now, I just picked up Dynamics of Skill Acquisition, a constraints-led approach. I'm really enjoying that one. It's by Keith Davids. Um, and that looks at some using like dynamic systems theory to look at skill acquisition. Uh, been enjoying that one. I would also recommend anyone who is interested in the strength training side of things, look up Science and Practice of Strength Training by Vladimir Zatorsky. Um what else should people read? Uh, on the more like if for my clinicians out there, I would highly recommend picking up something like explain pain to help people um, understand pain and injury a little bit better. Um, and then once you get through those, then you can message me and ask for more and I'll probably give you a whole list. <laughs> even Progressions, even with books. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, all right. Now to finish off here, I, I, I want to say, well, first of all, the show is always my favorite, the whole part of the show, but this last part is really my favorite because uh, one, I've, I have a little fun with it and we get to know a little bit more about you uh, as the guest. So this is what I call a uh, speed round. Oh boy. Uh, and what that, what that consists of is three questions um, of, uh, could be of anything. And yeah, so you have literally 0.3 seconds um, to answer and I'm going to pull out my uh, little timer here stopwatch so i'll ask you a question and you, i'll click start on this little timer and if it gets 2.3 seconds i will do a buzzer sound and mm. my best attempt at a buzzer sound and then yeah I'm, and usually, I'm, I'm, ter I'm terrible at these things just yeah it's know. okay it's 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 supposed to scare you and make you nervous all at once oh, and perfect. then and me laughed the entire ah. time and hopefully the listeners laugh a little bit too but um don't worry well there is, is another uh, or should i say there is the option of answering the question again if you um are too slow okay it's okay and again to be honest this time is really arbitrary the, the three seconds i just created i felt like if i made a really short number and made it even more scarier and anyways it's just whatever comes to the top of your head that's what you say okay are you ready i am ready okay all right first question when preparing cereal, do you pour the cereal or the milk first? Cereal. Wow. That was pretty. So is there a, like a logic behind it just because you've always done that? I've always done it that way. You're Plus, second. If, if, if you pour the milk first, isn't the milk going to splash everywhere once you pour the cereal in? See, that's, that's more of a cleanliness. The other, uh, when I asked this to uh, Zach Wagner, he said it was to be able to get more cereal in there. So it was more like he wanted to eat more, but you're trying to clean and make sure that the area is clean. I well, like it. This see, I, I have like eggs, bacon, and cereal for breakfast a lot of days. <laughs> so, but, so I eat, my, I eat my eggs and my bacon first, and then I have cereal last, and then I have my coffee. Wow. So if I leave the milk in there with the cereal, the cereal is going to be soggy by the time I get to it. Got it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Second question, are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I actually have two here. I'm trying to decide which one I wanna I wanna say. Mm, let me see, let me see. Uh, what's the what's a current show right now that you can't stop watching? Right now I'm watching The Flash. The Flash. That's the one on Netflix with the Yeah. They just okay. released their new season. Okay. How are you enjoying it so far? Loving it. I think I saw one episode. Um and because it ties into or what is that the one that ties into Green Arrow as well? Yeah, it's that whole universe. Yeah. Listen, Green Arrow, I, I watched so this is this is one of the reasons why I try not to watch shows. The only the only reason I do is because Anna kinda of ties me into them. 
but uh, my fiance. But um, I watched one episode of The Arrow, and then I spent the next three days watching whatever was left, and it was a problem because I would go sleep <laughs> at four a.m. But I remember I think The Flash kind of made an appearance, and they kind of merged as two shows. So it was, it was super cool if you're into that kind of like how two shows and two superheroes kind of merge into into their world. So yeah, anyways, I'm, I'm a fanboy like, like that, so I, I watch all those shows. Got it. All right, third question. Are you ready? Uh huh. I don't know if you're ready for this one. All right. Mm, this is again. I have two questions here. I'm trying to decide which one's a better one to ask you and to keep the suspense. Okay. I'll I'll ask you this one. If you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? I think I'd fly. Fly. Why is that? It just seems like it'd be really fun. It would also <laughs> seem to be like a, a way to get get places a lot faster. Okay, fair and enough. I fly, Efficiency. I, fly so, I fly so much as this, it probably saved me a lot of money. True. This is true. This is true. All right. Well, that's the end of the speed round. Uh, and then this last part is more for actually for, for thanks. It's three thanks that I give. Uh, the first one is to you as the guest. Uh, I appreciate you, Jake, coming on the show, You know, spending some time with us. If there's anything I value, more than anything is time. The fact that you uh, were able to share some with us and share some knowledge and and really share more information about your course that you're helping so many uh, practitioners and and uh, or should I say other people really provide this type of impact. So thank you, uh, Dr. Jacob Harden. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me on. The second thank you is to our listeners. Listeners, I really want to thank you for giving us the time. You could have been listening to anything right now. You're probably on your way to uh, on your way home, on your way to work, uh, at school, whatever it is. You're probably at Starbucks studying or something. But the fact that you spend or you chose to listen to this uh, podcast and this episode specifically uh, with Dr. Jacob Harden, I you know I can't thank you enough uh, for giving us the opportunity to share and have this platform to share um, valuable information. Uh, and, and so, yeah, thank you very much. And then the last and final thank you is to our clients, to our patients and to our students. Thank you very much for giving us the platform to share our skill and our passion. Um, because again, if there's nobody to share this with is really, we're just speaking into space and into air. So thank you for allowing us to, thank you for valuing us. Thank you for really showing interest and, and, really giving us, like I said, the opportunity uh, to do what we love and what we're really passionate on a daily basis. Uh, with that being said, this is Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, signing out. Hey there, Andy Fortuna here, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. I love the opportunity to connect and share information with passionate people just like you, and would love the opportunity to do the same for others. So please take the time right now to leave a five-star review and help spread the word about this podcast. Thank you so much for your support and see you on the next episode. Hold up.